you know, these businesses are nothing without great people and great teams. And I would encourage everyone that's early in their careers that are listening to this, make sure uh, you're working with and around and for uh, the best people you can find that challenge you, that have great experience, that, that um, you know, that are willing to, to mentor and, and develop you and, and, and the sky's the limit because anyone can bring the, 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 the intellect, the education and the grit to the table, but um, being able to, to gather that experience and accelerate the learning along the way, uh, I think is just so important. Oil and gas today is more than exploration and production. It is more than the feet drilled or the hours of continuous pumping. The oil field is a group of people, companies, technologies, and institutions working towards providing the world with safe, affordable energy that is sustainable for the billions of people that depend on the success of the industry. The Oil Field 360 podcast is a 360 degree deep dive into the leaders of the industry who will provide listeners with a firsthand account of what it takes to build, maintain, and lead the energy business into the future. The Oilfield 360 podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, one of the largest and most experienced energy investment banking firms in the industry, offering M&A advisory, capital markets execution, and investment research. For more information, please visit SimmonsPSC.com. Lockton Global Energy and Marine, uncommonly different. Lockton is the world's largest privately owned insurance broker and risk finance advisor. Lockton's global energy expertise is centered in Houston and represents the largest concentration of energy specialists, clients, and experiential knowledge in the upstream, midstream, and downstream segments of the oil and gas industry. Visit Lockton.com for more information. Tomahawk Safety a leading manufacturer of safety gloves ergonomically designed for superior fit, offering best-in-class protection and helping you combat the industry's toughest jobs. Tomahawk is also supporting our frontline healthcare workers by offering isolation gowns, gloves, masks, and other critical medical PPE. For more information, please visit TomahawkSafety.com. Range Valuation Services Range is the only oil and gas-focused valuation and appraisal firm in the financial services industry. Range specializes in appraising and valuing oil field equipment, machinery, inventory, and property, and customarily works directly with clients, lenders, investment bankers, insurers, and private equity and debt sponsors. For more information, please visit rangevaluationservices.com. Welcome to the Oilfield 360 podcast. We are coming to you live from the Fletcher Azul Tequila podcast studio in Houston, Texas. My name is Josh Lowry. I'm one of the hosts of the show, joined as usual by the co-host extraordinaire, Mr. David DeRote. How are you, David? Doing well. Good afternoon. I'm all hopped up on espresso, thank to you, yeah. and uh, we're ready to we're ready to get going. Well, what's funny? I'm glad this is fantastic. I I did hype him up on caffeine. We did a podcast earlier today as well, and we it's, I don't like doing morning shows. I'm not good at it. My brain doesn't click on. No, not a morning person. No, I'm just not. I'm there, but I'm not as smart as I can be, which is I need every inch I can get. So, but you, you coming in hot this afternoon, I can tell. Man, half the day's gone by 9 a.m. <laughs> I mean, come on. You sound like my dad yelling at me for sleeping on a Saturday or something. 
Well, we are. Uh, we got a special guest today. We do. You, as you even changed your shoelace colors for him. I did. I did actually. I was noticing his socks. He's he's looking pretty suave over there too. So, uh, Mr. <laughs> David Parody, Chief Executive Officer of Trillium Flow Technologies. How are you, sir? I'm great. Thanks for having me, guys. You ever done a uh, podcast? David? My first time. So um, I'm sure you guys will train me well. <laughs> yes. Well, again, it's it's either it's it's a pretty simple you know, bar, it's either going to be, you're going to do another one and be like, well, this is so much better than what I just did. Or man, this is, these guys are fantastic compared yeah. to the other guys. Clay Williams said earlier, you know, your ratings are probably going to be going, going down after we said this. We said, you know, we didn't say this on air, but you know, honestly, probably we're going to hurt his ratings more. He's going to hurt ours. <laughs> so, yeah. that, that, that are between the two of us. You guys are really in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, we, you know, it's a busy time. We actually tried to get you a couple months back, but COVID has just put a, a, kibosh on any travel and work and i know you guys have been working remotely so thank you for your time well you're welcome and uh josh i know you've been trying to get me to come and and i'm glad i could finally make it and uh, it's long overdue you know i i have a story i just realized that when he said i've been trying to get him to come i i want to tell this real quick on air i hadn't thought of this one until now but do you remember when you and i first because i've known you now coming on probably seven years and david you'll like this story this is not as good david told a zz top story that day it was pretty phenomenal but you and I met and we were in a, an industry organization uh, annual conference and I was trying to, used to be the president of Weir SPM. Correct. Yes. And we'll talk about how Trillium was born out of the Weir group here in just a second. But uh, talking about guys like Clay Williams, David Parody, all these guys that are hard to get a hold of. I needed, I needed you. I needed your attention on this product uh, that I was trying to sell at the time or you know, still sell, but it, it's hard to get people like you. And we were at a conference and you and I had been talking you said, Hey, are you going to the airport at five? I'm like, yeah, actually I'm, I'm going over there. And I was living in Dallas at this time. And you were trans, you were living between Fort Worth and, and Houston. You said, great. Are you on the, uh, you know, five o'clock United flight? And I said, yeah, I am. And I was actually on the five o'clock American airlines flight to Dallas where I lived. And I said, you like, cool, ride with us to the airport. And I was like, this would be great. I'm going to get 45 more minutes with this guy. This is the only time I'm going to get him. So I better figure out how to do something to get on this plane I'm supposed to be on. So we, I, I said, let me go to the restroom real quick. I had to walk away. So I stepped away and I called American Airlines or United Airlines. And I said, I need a ticket on the five o'clock to Houston. And they said, we have one ticket left. It's the first class. It'd be $750. And I said, damn it, I'll take it. So I bought a $750 first class ticket. And then I thought to myself, well, this is great. He's got to be in first class. I, I'm hoping he will be. And sure enough, we get on the plane, we board and it's me, you and my competitor. And we get on the plane <laughs> and we get on the plane and they put me right next to you. And my competitor was across the row. And I just remember looking at this guy going, <laughs> so then we, you and I have three or four hours flight time back to Houston. And this is great. We shake hands, the relationship developed from there. And I had to rent a car and drive back to Dallas because I was living in a you know, Josh, city. that's what I love about you, though. You're an entrepreneur and you, and you do what it takes. And, um, you know, that was funny. I, I don't know if you remember, we talked a lot of strategy flying back. On. Yes. I'm I'm a strategy guy and and like to look look to the future a bit and uh, try to drive things that way and uh, it was a great conversation I remember it's it's been fun ever since it has been and I'm glad you in fact when we were doing our prep work for this I said uh, talking about David I see he's very strategic he's one of the more strategic people I've ever met so give us a little bit of background on how you got to where you are today and it's very entrepreneurial inside of big companies really so if you don't mind give us a scoop. Well, you know, I've been uh, blessed with a great career and um, 
I was at a and I'm a mechanical engineer, um, started there in, in, in 86. And while in school, I wasn't the best engineering student. In fact, I lived in a fraternity house for three years and really enjoyed that. And um, I did decide to um, go through the co-op program, which means it's like internships. You, you leave for a semester and you, you work and you write a paper and you get credit. And I, I did that one semester in, in Chicago for Melrose Distribution, which was uh, M&M Mars Candy, which was kind of fun. And then the next semester, uh, I had a fraternity brother um, that I co-opted. I had a fraternity brother that invited us in, or invited me in to interview for for a role in his company. He, he had graduated right before me and I ended up doing that. And I thought it was really strange because I was this college kid and what they wanted me to do for a semester is drive this big fifth wheel demo trailer all over the country. You know, they they used independent sales channels and you'd go in, you'd meet up with the sales guys and the, the principal of that business and you'd be in a refinery or you'd be at a you know, at, at some compressor station on a pipeline somewhere doing sales presentations. I was basically the truck driver. Well, that's what I thought I was going to be. But then, you know, the second stop I made, they said, you know, the sales guy can't make it and the regional manager can't make it. We don't know what we're doing. And I called my boss back in Houston. He said, well, you know, we're going to send overnight this, this, this manual to you, the home study course manual. We want you to study it. And then you just start doing the presentations. And it kind of went from there. So <laughs> as um, an intern. I, I was, a, I was an intern, second semester intern. You know, I was very much a graduate student in college. So it wasn't like I was going to apply my great engineering wisdom at the time. I guess I had the gift for gab at the time. And so I uh, studied and, um, you know, we, we would, this, this trailer was outfitted with a, a compressor and a, and a tank and we were demonstrating how relief valves work. This is Anderson Greenwood Company. It's owned by Emerson today. And um, there I am giving sales presentations and I fell in love with it. And I never, I never went back to engineering after that. I finished my engineering degree, but then I got on the sales and marketing side of things. So I, I, I interned with Anderson Greenwood that was, that was owned by um, Keystone International at the time. And then I made it from there to, um, you know, I went back to school and I had a, a guy that I worked for, Rick Schauger. He, uh, he convinced me when I was going back to A&M, he said, hey, how about we keep paying you while you go back to A&M so that when you graduate, we just, we want you to come the back. hook. That's smart. It was a great hook. And yeah. by the way, there's nothing better than being paid back then, you know, 35 grand a year as a college student uh, oh. with the corporate credit card. Though I had interviews. It, it, was, it was a different world. And, and I did that. And I did some projects for him while finishing my, uh, my engineering degree and then and came back and went to work for him. And, um, and I spent 22 years with, with Keystone, which ultimately became Tyco International. And it was just a really great run. A lot, a lot of uh, movement through product management, sales, general management. And um, it was, I, I had the type of journey, Josh, where I was never in a role longer than a year and a half or two years at the most. And, and, and my view was get all the experience you can get. So I did that. And Tyco is, um, at the time, that business was very diverse, um, sold a lot into LNG, sold a lot into uh, the midstream on, you know, compressor stations from relief valves to instrumentation valves and, and um, some upstream work, um, spent a lot of time in the shipyards in Korea. And, and uh, it was just terribly successful run just from a learning standpoint and, and working with great, great people. And then I made my way from Tyco, as you know, to Weir, and that happened in uh, 2012. And in 2012, uh, January, we were... Uh, That's We're SBM. Yes, We're, okay. we're SBM. Yeah. And um, I went there, as you know, to work for Paul Coppinger, mm -hmm. great guy, and, and, and 
turned out to be a great mentor and still is today and went there to, to run sales marketing. And they had a big service business at the time, over 20 service centers across North America and, and a few overseas. And of course, this was right when, when the shift from gas to liquids was happening and, and gas fell out. And, and it was an interesting time. I think I, as, as a leader of sales and marketing service, I think we took a couple hundred million orders off the books. And I'm like, I'm not sure I've made the right career decision here. <laughs> But uh, in that early part of my, my tenure there at SPM, but, um, you know, it, it worked out well because I did that for, for not very long. And then I had an opportunity to run, run SPM and, you know, the whole pressure pumping business, which was SPM and Novatech. And, and there were some smaller pieces as well. And, and Paul was running the division at the time. And uh, it, it, it's really, that's how it's come together. I yeah. mean, it, it really started with an internship and a fraternity brother. And I know uh, Prang's been on, on, on your show before. and. And uh, it was actually a recruiter that I had a long uh, relationship with. I wasn't out looking for a job. He called me when I was with Tyco, and Tyco had just sold the business uh, to Pentair. And I took the phone call, you know, more to catch up with this guy than anything, and took the phone call. And two and a half weeks later, I was working for Weir. So um, <laughs> that's just how things work. So how did just just curious? You know, we had David on and. Big fan of David, and he's such an interesting guy. Got great stories, and has been around interesting people. How did that conversation go with you and him? Can you give us a, any insight to to yeah? And, and, and this was this wasn't this wasn't praying. It was actually one of his competitors, but um, this guy Sanjay uh, Gupta, who's with uh, Egon Zinder, great you know one of their competitors. Um, but um, you know, Sanjay called me up and he said, I got this guy looking for someone to run this service business and sales and marketing up in, up in Fort Worth. And uh, are you interested? I said, well, you know, I'm considering a move right now to Switzerland because of what's going on in, in Tyco. So let's talk. And so I pulled into to my driveway at the house. We, we talked a little bit. And then as this conversation went on, <laughs> Um, about the role and 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 where where it was going, and I was really interested in the upstream uh, oil and gas space, the unconventional space at the time. As you know, it was very dynamic then. Yeah. Uh, of course, this was right before gas fell out, and uh, so uh, we had this conversation. But then, as the conversation went on, I figured out that I had interviewed with Paul Coppinger before when he was at Circor, one of Tyco's competitors. You know, I'll I'll just make it known publicly. He offered me a job, and I turned him down. But um, at at the time, and 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 really, no other reason. I then I just wasn't ready to 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 leave Tyco at that time. This was about four years prior to to the the phone call we're talking about. This time, I said, yeah, you know, if, if Paul's willing to talk to me again, I'll certainly talk to him. Uh, I turned him down once, uh, but I ended up uh, meeting with Paul the next week in in Houston, and and the rest is history. Well, you know, you you had a good run there, and the opportunity to go into the weir group is that how it naturally happened to say hey we want you to come yeah so so how did i end up as as ceo of trillium and and it's a bit of a long story um uh, i'm not sure your listeners have the time so i'll try to be a, <laughs> try to be brief but um you know i was uh, running the pressure pumping business at weir myself and my team had a pretty successful run managing the business during the the downturn of 15 and and 16 that we we know so much about. And on the back of that, a lot of us got opportunities. And um, John Stanton, the CEO of Weir, called me and said, hey, we're, we're thinking about, you know, selling the uh, Weir uh, flow control business, but we also need a leader of that business. And would you consider coming over? And they hadn't made the decision to sell. They were thinking about it, but he's like, come on over. 
if you're interested, take this role. You know, uh, it was a divisional president's role, so it was on the group exec of Weir. And he goes, I, I, I'd like your opinion on whether or not we, we, we divest of this. Um, you know, I want you to spend some time with the board and, 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 and with others and let's figure this out. So, so I did that. I took it on. I thought it was real interesting. And, um, you know, I took that role in, in January of 17. You know, I, I went around the world. I think in, in the first 90 days, I hit all the facilities, 11 businesses around the world and, you know, talked with a lot of customers. And what I observed is we had a great group of employees. We had some brands that were as old as, you know, 150 years old. But uh, it was a business that or a division that was in a larger industrial weir. That just wasn't getting the attention. And it wasn't performing well either, which is why it wasn't getting the attention. Anyhow, ultimately, we decided to divest of the business. We hired Goldman Sachs to uh, take us through a sales process. And through that sales process, I, you know, when, when you're the divisional president and the division's being sold, your phone rings a lot. And so a lot of, a lot of calls from private, private equity and, and strategics and others and, and um, just asking, you know, what I wanted to do, what, what, what was best for the business. And, and, um, through that, um, Mike Scardigli and I at first reserve ended up having a dinner here in Houston and talking a little bit about it. They had, they had owned the, the dresser business in the past. And, um, I said, Mike, this is a business we could do a lot with. And he goes, you know, we had a great experience with dresser. And then, and then it kind of just, uh, took off from there. And, and, uh, we took the business, uh, private on June 28th last year. And, and that's when I became C, CEO. First Reserve is our uh, sponsor. We have a minority sponsor as well. And, um, you know, and then we, we raised some debt through BNP. It's been a great bank to work with and very successful process we went through to syndicate our debt. And the company's healthy. Uh, we, we generated quite a bit of cash uh, through the end of last year, and we're continuing to today. So so far, everyone's um, in a pretty good place. So we'll we'll see how it uh, how it goes here. You know, there's a bunch of different ways I want to go. I'm looking at David as we're talking here, David uh, DeRode. And first of all, I I want to find out: Do you miss the upstream uh, capital equipment market at all? I know it's kind of like the wild west. Do you miss any of that compared to these 150 year old businesses? You, you know, I, well, I do. I do because it's so it's so dynamic and ever changing. And you know, before we started the podcast, we we're talking about the great people uh, in the upstream oil and gas industry, and 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 there are just exceptional people all over, um, with great stories and experiences and and wonderful people to learn from. And I miss that aspect of it, you know. And and, and we have similar in our business now, and but but we're more diversified in terms of end use markets. So so it's not a real tight knit group in the industry like the upstream, especially the unconventional space here here in the US and Canada. You know, I I do miss it. If if that day ever comes back, we'll see. But um, you know, thirty percent of our business today is in, in oil and gas, really weighted towards downstream with some some midstream. In fact, in our our, our uh business in just north of Milan is an API six ten pump business that provides the the main pumps and refineries and then all the ancillary pumps to 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 move all the product uh, through the refineries. And, you know, that's a great business to be in. And of course, Midstream's had its run here of late. Um, it's kind of tailed off here uh, given COVID and, and the drop in the, the commodity prices. But, um, you know, we sell pumps into Midstream and, and, and that's been nice. Um, so, so I'm still greatly tied to oil and gas, but it is very different, um, you know, in, in those segments than, than the true upstream oil and gas space. I think one of the things we're, talking about before the 
mentioned Milan, part of the world Josh and I enjoy very much. Tell us a little bit about your experience. Obviously, you're part of a global supply chain. You've got a global operations in China and Italy and everything. How, how have y'all performed with, with this disruption? Well, you know, David, when you put together a, a model and a plan to take a company private and you look at all the risks and all the mitigations, nowhere in that work is a global pandemic. We have a small business uh, in Suzhou, and so it was originally impacted. We have a, and, and this happened, by the way, in China just after we relocated our plants and, and both of our offices, the one in, in, in uh, Shanghai and Beijing. So um, that business certainly had its um, challenges, I'd say, but it actually performed well through all this. But, um, you know, um, uh, the, we've got a great leader there in, in, in Sissy, and she did a, a fabulous job. We managed through it, uh, got our employees back to work and, and kept them safe. And, and then it just kind of followed us around the world, our facility in Korea, and, and we have a large business in Milan, as I mentioned, and, and it was impacted. Look, we were, we were blessed in that without exception. Well, that's not true. Except for in India, we were considered an essential business because we provide products to oil and gas. We provide products to power generation. In general, tried to keep our plants working as much as we could. Um, in several cases, we, we did shut them down for a while. We're still running at about 60% capacity in India. But we did send all of our offices home and, and where we can use um, smart working. We're, we've got people doing that. And and, and using technology and adopting uh, new new technologies. But, you know, the real, the real challenge has been how we interface with our customers. You know, we sell an engineered product. I would say north of 90% of what we do is truly engineered, where, where we're looking at specifications, we're looking at the application, and, and we're engineering to order. And um, when you're not sitting across from your customers, that's difficult to do. But our team has adapted well. You know, if it's, it's Zoom or team meetings with, with, with customers and project teams, we're, we're doing that. Um, you know, on our service side of the business, uh, we, we recently did a job in, in Russia where we used augmented reality with, you know, technicians that we hired locally in, in Russia from afar to, to wear, um, you know, glasses that were projecting images and things back uh, from the computers and, and communicating with the guys back in Milan so that uh, we could get pumps repaired in a facility and back up and running. And, uh, we're doing a similar job right now in the Middle East, and that's just what you have to do. And um, I mean, when you say augmented reality, so are we talking like Google Glasses type thing, or what do you mean? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. They're they're wearing glasses that's got they've got cameras on them. They can um, look at something going on in in the you know piece of equipment in in the field. And our technicians back in Milan are seeing the same thing they're seeing. And then that same uh, technician that's back in Milan can share information with them on. On their glasses, so they can't, they can't they look like, look at the plans and like pull them, explode them, and see how everything kind of comes together. Yeah, look, it's in you know it's it's in its early days, yeah. and you know we're not full blown three D on some of the components and things, but just being able in real time to share information, live information yes. back and forth is is where we've started, and and um, it's working well. And and quite frankly, the models work so well, we're starting to scale it across our other businesses. That is cool. That's real cool. That's real cool. That's a technology that you couldn't do, what, five years ago? Yeah, no. Not to this level? No. You know, part of our strategy is to be acquisitive, and, and you know, um, we're trying to continue to to pursue M&A during this. And I, I took my first virtual plant tour. Uh, uh, you know, we're looking at business over 
over in Turkey. And, and, um, you know, that was interesting, but, but their team there did an excellent job with technology and taking us through the plant. And in fact, we talked about it. It, it was, um, it was probably even better than a typical uh, plant visit because you could stop and get everyone that was involved. You can stop at a certain point and say, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. Where when you're going through a, a typical plant tour, you know, when you're trying to do an M&A deal, you're kind of escorted through mm -hmm. and people wander off. And uh, But it worked pretty well. <laughs> how'd, so, you like, how'd you like to be the guy wearing the camera? Yeah. <laughs> sir, stop. Turn left. Yes, sir. Wait here 10 minutes. <laughs> and, Go closer. And, and they actually, I think what, what they used was actually, um, they pre-filmed drone footage is what they did through the plant. Oh, okay. And um, it was just, it was great. Oh, so, so it's almost like a Google map then where you can just turn and look at what you want to look at. It's that really, is pretty cool. It's really cool to see the utilization of the technology. One of our guests that was on, Dirk Lee, he's got, uh, you know, all that going for, for them in terms of uh, utilizing the virtual reality and augmented reality to train and his people, but then also show his clients how how they're going to run a job before they do it. And I know modern who we need to get Casey Crenshaw yeah. on here. Casey, if you're listening, get you and your brothers and your dad on here. But you know, modern groups doing the kind of the same thing. It's 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 uh, it's pretty cool. Clay Williams was in here and he was talking about. You ever seen these saws? They're the circular saws that if you put a hot dog in there, uh, simulating a finger, it'll stop immediately before it even cuts. Yeah. It will not cut the hot dog. It's incredible. And like, how can it know that? quickly right to where it stops from cutting and clay said that they've got some new technology on the rig floor where if a person walks into an area it just cuts off immediately and you know th th those are the kind of things is you know what we've done these last i don't know three four months of podcasting and interviews with people and again the sole reason of the podcast is to tell these types of stories that just aren't being told it is the technology that you're talking about is that's simple right i mean in some ways that's somewhat of a simple but it's not. It's it's a way that you're you're getting better access, immediate access, safe access. Nobody is in, in harm's way. There's a lot. It's cost effective, so it allows companies to be the smarter oil field, the smarter industrial, you know, whatever the smarter industry that they're in. I I just I'm thoroughly encouraged by hearing stories like because I've seen that online. Actually, we were looking at how can we get people to tour our place. That's why I was familiar with the Google Glass. I think Microsoft has a, a setup as well that's pretty handy, but um. It's just that you're going to see more and more of these things coming up. Yeah, look, the one thing I think that we're going to take away from the the pandemic as as we come out of it is just more efficient ways and effective ways to work. Be it individuals, you know, managing their their work life balance, which you know I'm all for all of us doing a better job of that. And um, I think we're learning now how we can better balance life and and still be effective. And um, you know, how we serve our customers and, and how we interface with employees. You know, we, we were kind of blessed. We were still coming off the TSA with, with Weir, where we were still on their IT systems. And literally a, a, a week before the pandemic started, got to the point where we had to start shutting things down, uh, we had just, you know, uh, turned on our, our Microsoft 365. And we were trying to figure out how we were going to accelerate adoption of things like Teams and other things that, we weren't we were paying for we're the license fees for but we weren't yet using it and uh so when this started i just said you know what we're going to a team's environment i don't want to have another phone call or share another file or you know have another one-on-one -on -one with you know with my direct reports without it being through teams and you know the file sharing the 
the live chat, the, the, obviously the communications and, you know, those are, those are the positive sides of the pandemic. I mean, look, the, the toll it's taken on, 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 you know, per, people and lives and families, you know, around the world, it's, it's, it's horrible. And I think all we can do is keep each other safe and, and, and learn from this from a business perspective and take these new efficiencies and learning and, and continue to use them. And the world's going to stay different and, and it's going to be better. You know, I, I, I do know you personally, business, and you said something a minute ago that is actually contrary to everything I've ever thought about you. Do you know what, I, what I'm going with this? It's You probably think I work too much. Jeff. I was just <laughs> about to say, you say a work-life balance, but I've always known you to be one of the hardest pushing guys I know in business. So has there been a work-life balance kind of realization for you, or has it really given you pause to be able to look at things differently? Well, you know, it has. Um, I have a nine-year-old son. I, I have a 16-year-old stepdaughter. I've got uh, two children. Um, in fact, I, I, one of my, my son, uh, oldest son, just finished uh, culinary school in Houston. Not a really good, good time to do that, by the way, but he's, he's, doing, he's doing okay. And I've got a daughter at, at Sam. And, you know, the two, two older ones especially did, probably didn't get enough of my attention uh, through the years. Um, but, um, you know, staying home with, with our 16-year-old daughter and, and nine-year-old uh, son has been fun, you know, to be able to step out of the office at lunchtime and throw the the baseball across the family room and get mom to yell at you. Um, you know, those those are life moments you don't get back um, when when you're flying around the world working all the time. So, you know, that's been, you know, part of the silver lining here is reconnecting with the family. And, and I think all of us have had an opportunity to do that. I've noticed you guys haven't done it too much because you're still working like crazy. But, um, you know, that, that's, that's one thing working from from home has allowed a lot of people, I think, to reconnect with their families. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to turn it back on. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of anxious to uh, get on an airplane again and, yeah. and interact with our teams and customers around the world. It's uh, there is an energy that comes from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's hard. It's hard being grounded. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't wait to be on another commercial flight. It's gonna be it's gonna be interesting to watch people because I think there's so many people who are just so excited to talk to a real life person and not a video screen. You know, I, I hear that from, from a lot of the people that, that I work with. That they've had enough of the at-home experience. They want to actually get back to the office. They want to get moving around, traveling. And yeah, we, you know, people. United Airlines, we've talked to them about partnership with the podcast. And they're hurting terribly, right? I mean, these companies are, everyone's hurting, but the airlines are just getting killed. And, you know, I can tell you that nobody wants you to start traveling more than United Airlines. Like, they're ready for people to get back, start seeing clients and, and getting around the world. Yeah, you know, the leaders of those businesses, it's tough, you know, and all of them now are, are announcing their reductions that are going to take place. So obviously, the WARN Act, they have to um, announce those a um, certain amount of time prior to doing it. And, and unfortunately, they're having to go through that. You know, that's the hardest part of being a leader through this. We, we can work like crazy to, to, to keep people safe. But when you start impacting people's livelihoods and, and, the, and their families, because you just don't have the, the work and the roles anymore, it's tough. And the airlines uh, are experiencing that uh, more than anyone through this, and it, it's really unfortunate. You know, we we've been we've been in a good spot because the business is is holding up well. Uh, we, we did some furloughs, and we did took some actions early. Very few layoffs. Um, you know, and that's that's allowed us to kind of keep our heads high through this and and not have to uh, impact too many families and you know we're going to continue to do our best to 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 behave that way and act that way but um well i really feel for for the airlines because that's that's no fun now we were we were asking clay earlier and i hate to keep bringing up clay on on your on our conversation with you but he he did say something that i've been 
my wheels have been spinning about not talking so much about leadership, but followership. And I think that's, that's kind of an interesting um, remark that he made and that, you know, there's lots of folks that are out there that call themselves leaders, but it's another thing to have followers. And I think leadership is, you know, being able to make tough decisions, which a lot of companies are having to do because it's a, it's a tough thing to do. A lot of people struggle making decisions, but to also have followership where people actually don't view you just as a figurehead, but actually believe in what you're doing and want to follow you and help you accomplish and achieve goals and objectives. You know, you know, that's right. And if it's, if it's myself or if it's our whole management team, you know, we want to, you know, we do want to make sure that empathy and compassion are, are part of what we bring to the table because it's, it's not just about the, the bottom line anymore. I realize, and, and everyone on my, my team realizes that it's, you know, our 2,800 employees that, you know, come to work every day, especially in this environment where they're taking work, take, taking risks because they're essential workers and they're coming and uh, to work and, and they're still delivering the same customer service and quality products and just, uh, they're just remarkable. Uh, and, and quite, quite frankly, if I could, you know, reach out to every one of them individually and, and thank them, I would. Um, obviously, I do it through all of our various communications, but, you know, we want to, we want to, have very much a, a small company view on how we we take care of our people and and that like i said involves compassion and, and empathy and it's very very important well it sounds like one of the things we also like to talk with people and josh is passionate about and obviously pisa leslie which you know some of the great initiatives of awareness that she's she's pushing through the organization uh diversity and inclusion and it was interesting when you were talking about we were just talking about covid and your operations in China and sounds like you've got a, a, a female leader of your business in China over there, which is pretty cool. What are your thoughts about uh, diversity and inclusion in the in your business and in the the industry as a whole? A quick word from our sponsors, and then we're right back to the show. Prang and Associates, the global energy search leader. Prang and Associates is the world's leading executive search firm totally dedicated to the energy industry. Over our 39 years, we have assisted more than 750 management teams and boards in 75 countries and conducted nearly 3,600 engagements. For more information, please visit prang.com. Daniel Energy Partners, in-basin research you can trust. A leading provider of U.S. oil field research known for its original boots-on-the-ground research approach, as well as its famous barbecue events. Daniel Energy Partners utilizes both its extensive network of top oil field professionals and frequent in-basin field tours to provide real-time market intelligence. Visit DanielEP.com for more information. Galtway Marketing. Answer this question. What makes your company different? You have seven seconds to catch a customer's attention. Galtway Marketing can build your brand and craft your message for maximum impact across all your marketing efforts. Visit galtwaymarketing.com slash 0360 to bring your company into the 21st century. Thank you to our sponsors. And now back to the show. You know, Tycho back in, in the, the mid-90s was really focused on, on this and, and quite progressive. And so I, I learned a lot. And, and what I learned is really what we don't talk about enough, and that is the real value that companies get from having um, different perspective and different thought and 
and, and you know, different experiences at the table when, when you're making decisions or trying to move projects forward. And, you know, there's a real business case for diversity and inclusion. And that's before you even talk about just the right thing to do. You know, um, you know, there are underrepresented groups around the world that, you know, all of us that are are in positions like this need to be working to to make sure that their voice is heard and they have a seat at the table and they have opportunities. And um I'm a big believer in DNI. In fact, we just launched our our new DNI charter within the company. Our our head of HR, Stacy Winsett, is um leading that effort and doing doing an an excellent job. You know, I'll tell you, we've got a great board. I'd, I'd like our board to be a little bit more diverse. Um, and we're having those those conversations. My management team, my general counsel is um, Me- Megan Witchuk, just an exceptional lady. And and um, you know, I, I couldn't ask for for a better person in that in that in that role. And and you know, I'd like to see more diversity in our industry. If it it's upstream oil and gas or midstream or downstream, I'd like to see. Uh, you know, more minorities in, in positions of, of leadership. But that also means that we need to to fill the pipeline, if you will, to mm-hmm. use a bad analogy, to to make sure that we're developing them and, and giving them the opportunities uh, to, to grow. But I can tell you that the, my successes as, as part of teams has come uh, when there's been the most diversity in that group. And I'm a real believer in that. I always have been uh, even at Weir, um, you know, they're very focused on DNI, rightfully so. You know, that's how Trillium's going to behave. We're we're going to be a diverse organization, and and we're going to do everything we can to make sure that we're developing the talent to to grow. You, you you have been very open in that for years, actually, and not that this is. I mean, I think this is, as you mentioned, there's a strong business case, but then there's also the right thing to do. David David is far more prepared than I am, by the way. I I just photocopied your. I wouldn't expect anything. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a couple notes here. David goes through. He's, he's got- not eating a donut on our podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, I told you we did a morning podcast. I got hungry. There was a fresh ship. Please. What am I not going to eat it? Exactly. Look, I haven't walked away from too many. Exactly. Fresh of course I'm going to eat it. <laughs> hey, I, I, I'm, I know I'm, I'm throwing rocks in glass houses, but. Uh... <laughs> well, but you know, one of the things that, that is the most that, you know, not everybody's going to spend $750 and fly to a city. They're not supposed to be in to get three hours with you. Right. So this podcast is going to be a lot of people's only interaction with with David Parody. One of the things that David DeRoad and I have enjoyed the most on this entire process, just all these interviews, is culture. Like culture in a six-person company is difficult because all five people are looking at you. But in a 2,800-person company, how do you create that culture, create that? And, I, you know, I didn't understand where your DNI passion came from until you mentioned that Tyco was real strong about that in the 90s. To where it looks like it looks revolutionary in 2010 in the oil and gas business, really. And I remember thinking you're you being as vocal about it back then was like, well, I've never, no one else is really not standing up, but certainly not speaking out, I guess is a better way to say it. So how do you create that um, culture within Trillium flow now? Well, you know, it's just who we are. So as we were coming out, I, I took my leadership team kind of offsite for a few days. And we spent a lot of time working on our, our vision and our, our mission and, and what we were going to be and, and, and spent a whole lot of time on our values. And values are easy to put on paper. Values are very difficult to, to demonstrate every day and mm-hmm. to really create a culture that, that rallies around those values. And, you know, we're, we're a year and a month or so into this and um, we're still not where, where we want to be, but, you know, we, 
work every day to make sure if it's decision making or if it's hiring practices or how we interact with any of our stakeholders, we we live our values, and and I think that's how it starts. Um, you've got to you've got to be the example uh, of what you want from a culture standpoint. That doesn't mean that um, you know we're not going to be entrepreneurial. Uh, the the great the great thing about having a sponsor like First Reserve is is it's not bureaucratic. We we get to move quickly. We we love to move quickly. It fits my style, um, and. Um, you know, we're, we're going to make the right investments. We're going to be smart about how we deploy our capital, but we're, we're going to do it um, in a way that, that we grow quickly. And, um, you know, I want that type of culture, but we're always going to do it um, ethically and, and with a high degree of integrity um, everywhere we operate. I think I can ask you this question. You know, there's a big push around this concept of ESG, which has been around for a while, but it's, it's, uh, becoming more and more in the front of people's minds. It's being talked about quite a bit. When you think about your business and you're growing your business, and obviously, you know, as you said, there's, you can't just flick a switch. There's always opportunity for continuous improvement. What kind of KPIs, leading indicators that, that you guys are paying attention to in your own business to kind of try to drive? Boy, great, that. great question. And and David, I'll remind you, I, I, I tell everybody we're a 150-year-old startup because we're, we're a year into this. And, you know, the, the, the first few weeks, we were just happy to make payroll and our computers turn on. <laughs> uh, and, and, and things have gone very well, by the way. We've, we've had no issues. But, um, you know, there are a lot of things that we want to do that we can't do, do quick enough. And we've wrapped our, our ESG program um, kind of around or, or, or the, or put it under the umbrella of sustainability. And I mentioned Megan Wichuk, our, our GC, I've asked her to help me lead this. And, um, uh, she's working with a young analyst in our business and Aggie, by the way, uh, Caroline Fahman, and they're doing a great job because we, they went out, they researched, there are several companies now, uh, or, or industry standards groups that put together some really nice, um, uh, kind of protocols and guidelines and, and specific metrics. And, and so we're starting to see some standards emerge in, in this space. And we are adopting those where, where it makes sense. So obviously, we're, we're, we care about our carbon footprint. And, and um, so we're getting to, to how much electricity we use and, and then breaking that down on per part or what have you. We're looking at the whole energy impact on our supply chain. Uh, but we're in our early days. I mean, as I mentioned with DNI, we we have a strong internal DNI charter. Well, we did the same thing with sustainability, and um, and it's part of our values and 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 who we're going to be. And and quite frankly, it's um, you know, our products are going to be a part of that, and our services are going to be a part of that. Um, you know, do we ultimately get to a circular economy? I think that's that's where we all should aspire uh, to be on the environmental side. But we've put a whole list of KPIs in place that we're, we're starting to uh, track out of our, our manufacturing plants and also our people that are moving around. And, and um, our goal, even though we're, we're privately held, is to publish a sustainability report each year, just like uh, the, the public companies are starting mm-hmm. to do. And, and there's a lot of reasons to do that. You know, it, it's unfortunate that kind of some outside pressures had to to get business to this point, but it's the right thing. It's like, it's just like diversity and inclusion. I mean, there's just certain things we've got to take care of our environment. Right. We, we've got to engage in uh, our local communities. You know, I'm so proud. Our, 
our, our, our business in, in, in India is it's a tough business. It's more the commodity side of our business. But what makes me most proud about that group is their engagement with local schools in Ubli, India, to make sure kids have shoes and, and kids can show up to those, those, those classrooms having basic necessities with, with a few of those schools. And, and, and we need to do more of that. I mean, um, our team in, in Elland in the UK, you know, they're very involved in STEM, especially STEM for, for, for uh, women. And so they're bringing in high school uh, age girls uh, through our facilities and having them see what we do and meet with our engineers and talk about a STEM career and, and influencing them, them early. Um, we want to do more of that on the social side. You know, we see what's going on here in the U.S. today, setting the politics aside. You know, there are there are underrepresented groups that business can help, you know, get a seat at the table. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we want to be a part of that. You know, our job is to get a return uh, for our for our investors um, and we'll do that. But this is going to be a part of it. That's what investors want. Right. You know, if, <clears throat> if it's if it's our bank syndicate or if it's our, the private equity sponsors that we have. They want us doing what's right. You know, the, the private equity firms, uh, they raise their money from, you know, pension funds and sovereign wealth funds. And, and they know it's the right thing for their constituents and for themselves to make sure that their investments are doing the right thing. But what's funny to me is I think that people think it's either a one or a other thing. And, and as you mentioned, you know, as a private company, apology for, you know, talking about that. But in a way, I mean, that's going to be huge for you guys. I mean, you are part of the supply chain. People are starting to pay. Your customers are, are looking for that kind of feedback because it feeds into their awareness of risk and, and, and for them to even communicate on how they're, they're doing and, and running a business. But these, these behaviors, these attributes that, that I just shared with us and I applaud you for, I mean, ultimately, those are those are the things that are going to lead to long-term viability, sustainability, pro- and thus profitability Value. of the business. And it's like, why would you fight that? And it's it's funny listening to some folks who 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 don't who haven't really taken the time to fully understand what we're trying to get at. And I think it's somewhat of a a mindset change that has to occur because so many people have been focused on kind of the results the lagging indicators, the, yeah. the financial results. And they're not really thinking about the inputs that ultimately go into what could and can and does drive those results. And I think if there was more focus on that, some of these companies would be performing better. They wouldn't be making decisions they shouldn't make and keep them. And then there's going to be folks that just don't pay attention to it. And those folks ultimately probably are not going to survive yeah. long term. Well, hang on, David, before you go into that, like I, what DeRote is talking about there is, but the negative of what we're, we don't have any cameras in here. We should, they're, they're close, but you know, I'm, I'm David DeRote. I'm sure. Can you see the body language though? in this, this isn't a. Yeah, no, but it's just like everybody we speak to. I mean, David is passionate about yeah. this. It's not, it's not lip service. Yeah. It's not BS. It, you know, it's not, it's not like conversations that some of us will have. And you got, you, Oh yeah. You know, yeah. The, we're doing the that guy or thing. the gal is just, Full of stuff. Well, like a Christmas and you know, turkey. you guys I'll, were doing that in you. Fort Worth, though, before. I mean, you've had this experience in a lot of these things. You know, my, um, I'm, I'm a simple guy. And, and my view on, on leadership and, and running a business is um, we're not going to do things that are not meaningful. And we're not going to do things because we feel obligated to do them. So right. we're going to 
we're going to brush over them. If if we're undertaking something, if it's an initiative or a project, it's because we believe in it. We believe it's going to create value. We believe it's going to you know be the right thing for for our constituents, our stakeholders. And and I think that's the key with with ESG and sustainability now is how stakeholders are defined. It's no longer just our employees and our suppliers and and our and our first level of investors. It's it's the whole ecosystem in, in which you operate. And um, I'm a believer if that's done right, especially if you're early movers in this space, depending on the industry, and some industries are better than others, but if you're an early mover in this space, um, you can create some pretty significant incremental value. And and I think, um, you know, CEOs and leadership teams are, are catching on to that. And, um, you know, we're gonna try our best to, to do it. We're a long way from perfect. Uh, we mentioned culture earlier. We're we're changing our culture, and oh, you're um, building it. I mean, you're building yeah, culture in many exactly. ways. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. We're 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 doing that, and and you know we're going to deliver results. We're going to be really good at executing. We're going to differentiate through technology and and through customer service, uh, but we're going to be known as a company that um, you know we 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 do what we say we're going to do, and part of that is our whole sustainability initiative. That's fantastic. It is. I and. I, the, it, there's very much a passion from you behind it. And I like that. But I think the other thing too is I think just like, I guess you could apply the old 80, 20 rule, particularly in the oil and gas industry as a whole, which we're larger talking about the energy space, which more or less you guys are largely serving in some capacity or another. There are a lot of companies that if, if they, if they had been formally trained to communicate about this or felt like there was a need to communicate, there are a lot of them that have a lot of really good stuff to say that would make people feel really good about what they're doing and understand why they do certain things. But there's always room for continuous improvement. And I think if anything, this concept puts puts more of a focus on the concept of continuous improvement. Like it's no longer acceptable to say this is something we're doing or we're working on. Okay, Well, one, prove it. And then show us how you're going to get better. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, by you focusing on that and getting better, you're going to drive better results out of your business anyways. And if I'm an investor or a lender or whatever, or just Joe, you know, Joe Public, that's that's what I want to see. So glad you were not that we would expect anything less, <laughs> but it's it's good to talk about. I'm going to I'm going to pivot just a little bit here to a subject that I know you love, and that is strategy. And I am curious to know how you apply strategy. And I know this is a very broad question, but I also know how seriously you take it. So there's, I doubt there's any level of question with regard to the strategy of the company from today till the next five years that you haven't analyzed a hundred different ways. So I'm curious about how do you view strategy? How, do, how important, again, very loaded question. I'm not trying to softball you here, but I think the audience would be blown away by how strategic you really are as a thinker. Well, you know, uh, Josh, words like strategic and strategy can be overused quite a bit. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I've always been a believer that you need to look out on the horizon, both intuitively and, and analytically. And, and um, you know, I grew up, again, in a great company where I was a, a product manager and um, did a lot of strategy work, was, was, was very visible. So if it's a product strategy or a brand strategy, or if it's the company strategy um, and where we're going, you know, I'm a really big believer that um, you get a lot of information. You talk to a lot of your customers, you do a lot of analysis. 
Um, you do your best to, to strategically plan out on, on a horizon and you head that way uh, with everything you have. And it doesn't mean you're always going to get it right. Um, you know, we're doing that now. Um, if it's our, our channel development in parts of the world or if it's certain products and, and segments uh, we go, we're going into. And you have to look at things um, strategically from, from a different stakeholder vantage point. Obviously, customers have needs. Your investors want to see where you're going strategically, and 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 um, you know what they're investing in. And so, look, I, I believe in in we have very specific strategic plans. We're not afraid to 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 pivot, to use your word, if 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 we need to. But we do a lot of work. We go through a process every year, uh, and it's not just an annual planning process. It's it's a five year strategic plan that's very um, detailed that's got a lot that we can go out and execute on. And, and then we, we measure on, uh, ourselves, uh, against that. And, um, each one of our businesses has one, uh, Trillium flow technologies has one, our pump division does our valve division does, and we're building one out for, for services. And so, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of detailed work. It's a lot of voice of the customer work. It's, um, understanding the, the 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 geopolitical world we live in today forming a vision and and getting a plan documented and 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 going forward with it and and that's that's a lot i said a lot you asked a very broad question we could get into the specifics of the tools we use but um you know i i, I just believe that you've got to have it you got to know where you're going i got a question on that it kind of related to that as you think about strategy has the market changing the way it has from a just supply and demand and then and then of course the demand side of of the market resulted from COVID-19 and in how the world has reacted to this has it changed the way you think about the risks that could impact your business that you integrate into your strategy and not only just like biological pandemic risk which I don't think anybody with the rare exception of few I mean a couple of the airlines talk about but are there any is this cause you to think about, okay, what else is out there that we're not thinking about that we should be, you know, baking into our calculus when we think about the efficacy of this strategy or another strategy and how we respond? And you know, I'll give you an example. Resilient. I'll give you an example where it's, it's really impacted us. Um, one of the reasons I took on, I, you know, I was a believer in taking weir flow control private as Trillium flow technologies is, and there's a whole laundry list of strategic things that we identified we could do uh, to really create value. And, and one of them was on um, the supply chain side of the business where all these companies, these 11 companies scattered around the world that are in our portfolio, they, they all had their own local supply chains. They were dabbling in best cost countries. They really weren't thinking strategically around supply chain. They were thinking more inputs, outputs, and meeting delivery dates. And you know, local price negotiation, but there was really no leverage of, of the spend. And there wasn't really looking at, at, at the, um, there was some, don't, don't get me wrong. My, my predecessor had really started this, but we, we had just scratched the surface on best cost country sourcing and, and leveraging. So fast forward, we, we, we get, we get after that and we're really going down that path. And then Trump and China, and that creates conflict and and uh tariffs and and then covid starts and logistics are impacted so all of a sudden you're questioning your supply chain strategy and you know are are we doing this right and um 
we're still wrestling with that today. And I, I can tell you, I think what's going to come out of this is is shorter supply chains, you know, more of a, a regional view on how we consolidate our spend. And and certainly flexibility in supply chain has to be a part of it. Um, especially as I mentioned earlier, we're going to differentiate ourselves on, on custom with, with customer service. Our industry doesn't do a good job with that. And um, that's unfortunate, but we think we, we can do that. Um, we're going to have to build supply chains that that can help us do that. And a, a long, extended, best-cost country supply chain may not be the answer. Yeah. It will be for some products, but not for all post, post-COVID post right. and some of the political issues that, that, that have led to it. I got one question. I'll let you finish up with us, David, here. Are you uh, a reader? You read in your spare time. I mean, are you reading any business? You know, books? Josh, I, I I I read the news every day, and that's yeah. about as far as it goes. Okay. <laughs> Just was wondering if there was any book you recommend, or if there was a, a uh, something that our audience would could. Well, you know, I'm a little old fashioned, and when people ask me about books, because I get that question a lot, um, and you look at what's happened to industries and ours and others, I'm still a believer in the in the concepts that, that are shared in the uh, innovators, uh, inventors uh, dilemma uh, book that Christensen wrote, right? Um, I think it's inventors. Uh, what's the name of the book, Josh? Um, but uh, inventors dilemma. Okay. If you haven't read it, go read it. Okay. It's essentially when you get into big, big companies uh, with, with, um, with very mature products, um, there's someone over on the side that's trying to, displace what you're doing because they're able to take the risk they're able to you know uh put all their resources into displacing what you're doing where um you on another hand are running a business generating profits you are in this the whole dilemma is you can't fail as much as they're failing to 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 unseat you um and how do you deal with the name of the book is inventor's dilemma uh, Christensen, I think is his name. And this, the book is very old. Um, but, um, I still think about that every day because, you know, think about the frack space. Yeah. Um, and if it was probably more applicable when I was running SPM, because I was always worried about what's the next technology. And, you know, we went from, from intermittent duty pumps. And, you know, when I was there, we pushed really hard into continuous duty pumps and, well, an alloy blocks to stainless was a big change. For you know, you. That, that's a great example. Yeah. And that was another actually sizable company that led that. And embarrassing for me, it wasn't it wasn't myself and my team. You know, we, we were fast followers in that case. But, um, you know, it's it's but it's that small company that's going to come from no out of nowhere or technology that rises up that will change, ultimately change the product space. But something is going to emerge that the the established service companies and the established manufacturers and EMPs, they're they're focused on generating return stay with what they have an incremental improvement. What they're not focused on is um, you know, really putting money and investment into that disruptive technology. And it's hard for them to do that. Uh and so that's that's the essence of that book, or at least what I've taken away from it over the years and and um keeping your eye on technology and how the world's gonna change and and not being um, kind of blindsided by disruptive technology, I think, right. as a CEO, is is something you, you worry about. I, I think about that, now that you mentioned more on the macro level, when you think about the energy industry as a whole, we were talking about this earlier, you've got this this massive investment that's taken place over a period of years, and in, in a dependency on 
traditional fossil fuels industry, um, as well as petroleum products. <clears throat> I mean, all the top companies on the in the stock market would not exist if it were not for the oil and gas industry, which people fail to recognize. But to your point about the ability of smaller, more nimble, when you think about how some of the alternative energy um, companies are able to come in and start shooting at the you know, institutionalized oil and gas industry has been pretty interesting. And I think what allows you to address that is this, this continuous advancement in technology that, that's occurring in the oil and gas industry, but also a focus on these, what we've been talking about just a minute ago, uh, finding efficiency, you know, through best practices tied to ESG, et cetera, that, that, that allow you to really um, responsibly focus on competing with those that are, that are shooting at you. And the reality is we still need these alternative energy sources, but it's, I was thinking about that when you were kind of an interesting yeah. point. We got to read that book. So I, I wrote it down. I'll put a link in the bottom of it actually. So <laughs> we also, we finish up with, um, have you enjoyed this? This has been great. Yeah, it? it's been really good. Hopefully, hopefully you've got some good, good insights and, and hopefully the, uh, the listeners uh, get the same. Well, you're going to, uh, we, we are, it's been great. We're obviously excellent at what we do. So you you, know. you'll be surprised. I think, uh, you know, I only say this because it's the feedback we've gotten from our guests. Um, how many people reach out to you after this? And, um, um, I, would, yeah. I would say all with, with positive response and, and, um, you know, people not knowing certain things about Trillium and various yeah. guests and, and yeah. what it's done for business development. I think what it's done for board asks, you know, uh, as well as trying to share ideas with, with like peers, it's been kind of interesting. So, so what we do is we finish up with asking the guest, is there something that you would tell yourself 20, 30 years ago, a piece of advice, a pearl of wisdom that you would like to share with uh, our audience, which is 80 countries, 49 states. I, I'm telling you, if Nebraska doesn't sign up pretty quickly, I'm going to lose my mind <laughs> and 150 U.S. cities. So what would you like to share with our, our global audience? We're, we're going to have to find some oil in those cornfields up there. Um, <laughs> I mean. It's I'm disappointed in Nebraska at the moment. <laughs> so hey, well, first of all, kudos to Oilfield 360 and the success that uh, you're having. Thank you, uh, David Josh. Uh, it's um, it's it's exciting, and I have done a little bit of listening to to some of your competitors out there, and you guys are you guys are um, setting a pretty high high standard. So so keep it up. Um, I I would. Um, you know, there's so much I've learned in my career, um, and 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 you know what I wish I knew when I first started is really the importance of people. I, I've always had a style of, of, you know, continuous learning and grits going to get me everywhere, you know, just hard work. Um, the, the, the quality of the people that you surround yourself is, is with is so important and not just your immediate team when you're the leader, but as you're, as you're coming up in your career and you start, you've got to be around people that you're learning from that that you respect that think differently than you do have a different different view on life and you know looking back i was i was really blessed to have that but it wasn't planned um but now that i know how important that is i, I wish i would have tapped into those those mentors and and some of the people i worked with instead i just had my ears pinned back and i was going hard and and i wasn't really taking the the the, the, the time to learn as much as i could have from from those around me 
And then as 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 um, you grow, the the quality of the teams you're on, and then then ultimately, you know, the the, the quality of the team you build uh, when you get to to lead the business. Um, I wish I would have appreciated the softer side of of teams and people and experience earlier in my career because I think I could have tapped into that and learned so much more uh, uh, than than I did at the, at the time. So I'm just a really b- big believer in, in the people side. And, you know, these businesses are nothing without great people and great teams. And I would encourage everyone that's early in their careers that are listening to this, make sure uh, you're working with and around and for uh, the best people you can find that challenge you, that have great experience, that, that um, you know, that are willing to, to mentor and, and develop you. And, and, and the sky's the limit because anyone can bring the, the 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 intellect the education and the grit to the table but um, being able to to gather that experience and accelerate the learning along the way uh, i think is just so important man that's great david do you have anything david derode do you have anything to add to the to no the i've conclusion enjoyed the, here i've enjoyed the conversation getting the catch i hadn't seen probably seen you in over a year or so and and i know you've been keep up with you through josh so appreciate you uh coming on and glad to hear you all are or having a good go of it, given all the headwinds. We're Seriously, facing. I appreciate you having me because I know we're we're a step removed from from upstream oil and gas. No, we're, oil we're, fill three sixty. We need yeah. you exactly. In fact, I would encourage. There's a lot of great people and great things going on in midstream and downstream, and and um, we've got them lined up. It's just the the calendar's it's not working out for us. We but, we 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 understand, but you guys are doing a. Uh, a great job and thanks for having me and if there's anything i can do to to help you out and i just want to give another shout out to uh, galway marketing because there's a story we did not tell and that is where the trillium flow technologies came from and and we partnered with galway early on and um they helped us uh through that process and we had a few iterations and 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 really got it nailed and uh certainly appreciate the the whole team at galway for for that effort and we continue to work with them today and and it's it's been really good for for a 150 year old startup like us. So well, I can much. tell you that you're about to learn the power of editing when I cut and paste that to the front of this interview. But no, we appreciate uh, just friendship, mentorship. You know, you mentioned finding mentors. I, I don't take it lightly how much you've poured into me and my friends, and honestly, the group that we have. And I'm excited for you. It is interesting to to hear your story about what was going on with Trillium, and you have a fan and a group of fans here at, at uh, the podcast. You'll always be welcome, uh, David David Drode. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the last couple of days. This has been a marathon. I'm heading to Colorado for a little vacation uh, tomorrow, which I'm excited about. All right. Yeah. So I'm going to be sure to call him at 2 a.m. in the morning when I'm (laughs) up thinking about stuff. Well, guys, thank you very much. It's, it's, it's been, uh, it's been a pleasure being here. Well, thank you. So that's going to conclude this episode of Oilfield 360. Um, We are available on your favorite podcast platform. We are also available on any social media at oilfield360.com. David, I forgot to ask you, is there a website that you would like to promote and have people come take a look at something? Trilliumflow.com. Come come visit us and um, reach out to us. You can find us all over the world for any of your valve and pumping needs, and uh, we're here to support you. Trilliumflow.com. There we go. And um, what else? I missed it. Oh, yeah. Any? You should know his website. Oh, I, I, like, I like it. I like it to come from them. I like it to come from them. Uh, the... You threw me off with, I should know that. I do know that for the record. But um, if you have any complaints, send them to david at oilfield360. 
If you have any compliments, send them to Josh at Oilfield 360. And uh, that concludes it. Another great episode. Thank you very much, everybody. Have a great day. Jonathan, as usual, man behind the scenes. Aggie, I don't know well if you done. saw him raise his... Kick him, buddy. Yeah. You guys probably just caused an accident. Y'all didn't say whoop or anything. Yeah. Don't. Cut that out. We got to cut recording here. All right. Thank you, David. Thank you. This episode of the Oilfield 360 podcast was brought to you by the following companies. EIV Capital, a growth equity-focused private equity firm, which has been providing capital to the North American energy industry since 2009. The team has extensive experience across the entire energy value chain. We invite you to visit EIVCapital.com and learn how we partner with entrepreneurs to build businesses. Merit Advisors, crafting holistic tax solutions to improve your cash flow and add profit back to your bottom line. When it comes to state and local taxes, Merit is the expert in the oil and gas industry. Visit MeritAdvisor.com. World Oil. For more than 103 years, World Oil has provided global decision makers with coverage of the latest market intelligence and technological advances relating to the upstream oil and gas industry. To subscribe and learn more about these essential resources, please visit worldoil.com slash subscribe. Thank you to our sponsors, Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, SimmonsPSC.com, Lockton Global Energy and Marine, Lockton.com, Tomahawk Safety, TomahawkSafety.com, Prang & Associates, Prang.com, Daniel Energy Partners, DanielEP.com, EIV Capital, EIVCapital.com, Galtway Marketing, GaltwayMarketing.com, Range Valuation Services, RangeValuationServices.com, Merit Advisors, MeritAdvisor.com, World Oil, WorldOil.com, Fletcher Azul Tequila, FletcherAzulTequila.com. For more information on today's guest and to learn more about our sponsors, please follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, or at oilfield360.com. Piper Sandler Companies, NYSE PIPR, is a leading investment bank and institutional securities firm driven to help clients realize the power of partnership. Securities brokerage and investment banking services are offered in the U.S. through Piper Sandler & Company, member SIPC and FINRA, in Europe through Piper Sandler Limited, authorized and regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission. Asset management products and services are offered through four separate investment advisory affiliates, U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC-registered Piper Sandler Investment Management, LLC, PJC Capital Partners, LLC, and Piper Sandler and & Company, and Guernsey-based Parallel General Partners Limited, authorized and regulated by the Guernsey Financial Services Commission. Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, are the energy specialists of Piper Sandler.